Good morning. Good to see you. Um, a quick thought on 4th of July before I preach. Um, it wasn't very long ago that I realized that not everybody loved the 4th of July. Not everybody celebrates that as a great day of independence for our country. And then we got into the second independence, and I was just totally blindsided by that. And as I began to think about it, I thought of the logic of it and, and tried to enter into some sense of sympathy for that. And I think I've been able to do that. Um, what I want to point out, I think, maybe as a, not a pushback so much as just a, more information, which is what I needed, which is obviously what I needed. I didn't have, I wasn't thinking clearly. Um, yes, the Declaration of Independence was signed by, I don't know, how many is it total men? White men, right? And it says that all men be created equal, which I just assumed meant all people at the time. And of course, that isn't exactly what it meant at the time. I do think it's what it's come to mean. I do think it's the seed of an ideal that some of those men who signed that document actually did mean. I think of John Adams, who didn't own a slave and was against slavery. I think of the men that I don't know their names that fought to try to get that included in very early on and were not able to because it threatened the very possibility of our nation forming. And I love the faith that they had to say, you know what, God's bigger than this. He can bring the, an end to this atrocity called slavery, even if he doesn't do it right now in this document. And so I think we can embrace the ideals, even though the men who maybe signed that document and put their lives in jeopardy for those ideals, even though they weren't walking perfectly well, maybe not even close, I love the fact that they were willing to sign their name to those ideals that contributed to where we are today. And I don't mean just the bad, I mean the good. And so I, I, I celebrate Independence Day. I'm grateful for this nation that I get to be a part of it. I didn't get to choose it, so I can't be proud to be an American because I had nothing to do with being here. God did that. But I'm grateful to be here. I'm grateful to be an American. Or whatever other nation God might have planted me in, I'd be grateful there too, as good or bad as it could be, because I am alive and breathing and able to be a part of the solution to the problems in our society, whatever they are, in whatever country we find ourselves. And so it's made it easier for me to embrace people from other ethnicities, other nations, and just see that we're just part of the human race. And I love that. So I just, I just a couple of thoughts that came to mind as I was thinking about the fourth over the last, really, the last couple of years. I just felt like sharing that. So we've been going through the book of Matthew, and we are in the Sermon on the Mount. We are, I say walking through, we're almost crawling through, it feels like. We're going through just a few verses at a time, because what Jesus is saying is very dense, and what I mean by that is it's very thick with theological weight. Every word we will, we will read in the Bible today is, is spoken by Jesus as part of his kingdom manifesto, if you will. And so they carry, um, to me, a little extra gravitas, even though all Scripture is God's Scripture and it's all God-breathed. There's something about the words of Jesus that, that grip me. And today's message is really why uh, um, reconciliation, in Jesus' mind, why is reconciliation necessary and urgent? And that's our bottom line today, is that 
Reconciliation is necessary. It is urgent. And I think it's going to challenge some of us, maybe more than any sermon this year. Because most of us, really all of us, can relate to being out of fellowship with another person that you were close to because of whatever. And the solution, the resolution to that is what's called reconciliation. It's coming back together. Okay? Now, real quick, there's a difference between... In, um, when we talk about being in, um, reconciled to God, that's our vertical relationship, I like to say it in two different ways. There's a relationship that we have with God or don't have with God. Actually, we all have a relationship with God. For some of us, it's child of God, son or daughter of God, and for some of us, it's enemy of God. We're just not there yet. So we all have a, a relationship, either good or bad, and that relationship determines our eternal destiny, okay? And, and it's all based on grace and faith. Once we come to know, if you are reconciled to God and you go from enemy to family, you go from enemy to kingdom citizen, then you have that, what we would call that relationship that we really all were created to have with God. And, but the reality is in that relationship is sometimes it's going well and sometimes not so much, right? So um, you can kind of equate it to your best friend. Uh, maybe there are times when you and your best friend are like this, and then you're like this, right? And it's like, well, we're still best friends, but we're not in fellowship right now. And so I use that word fellowship to say you can have a relationship that's in, bad, in, in a bad place, but that can be reconciled. Marriage is much like that, too. I am married. Anita and I are married. There's nothing changing that, um, short of death. But there are times when we're more in fellowship than others because of something I've said or did or, you know, whatever. We... Um, not that she ever uh, would ever qualify for that, right? So it's important that we understand that, re- that we're all on the same page. Relationships are the currency in which we breathe our air with our Creator and with each other. And when those relationships are out of fellowship, okay, then what is, what is being um, the, the desire that we feel that brings tension and conflict into our lives is the lack of reconciliation and the need for it. Okay? And that's what we're talking about today. Now, Jesus is going to use anger to get at this. And I don't think it's a coincidence. He is going through a series of six different, what I would call heavily relational laws in the Old Testament. And he's making the case, the Old Testament, I did not come to abolish it, I came to fulfill it. Let me give you six examples of how this law of God, this law of Moses, is applicable to the law of Christ, who is the new Moses. And so I don't want you to think that I've come to not only, I, not only have I not come to abolish it, I've come to fulfill it. But there is something he came to abolish. And that is man's traditions built around the Old Testament law that have taken away and distorted what the law said. In other words, that which undermines the heart of the law and focuses on the external part. This is why this, these, some of these statements are shocking when we read them. If you really understand what he's saying, the folks that were listening, would have, their jaws would have been dropped when they heard this. Okay? And you just wait till next week. I mean, and the next week. I mean, it's just, right, body blow after body blow of... Wow, jaw-dropping statements that Jesus is going to make. And he's making them without apology. Because, and he's making them with authority. You're going to notice that he is not going to say, it is written, but I say to you. He's not doing that because he's not quoting Scripture. 
Even though he's trying to uphold the law and scripture, he's combating the traditions of the elders, the traditions of the Pharisees, the traditions of the teachers of the law that had taken what is good, scripture, and added to it and caked it and covered it with this paper mache shield to try with good intentions to keep people from breaking the law, but instead clouding the whole issue and being a, a, a roaring example of what not to do at the end of the day. So Jesus is confronting this. He's confronting it head on. The fact that it is so shocking to us and to them should tell us how far apart things had gotten from where they needed to be. So that's where we're going today. We're going to answer those two questions. Well, why, is recon- well, why is reconciliation necessary and why is it urgent? Okay, so with that, let's, let's jump in. So first, we're going to start in verse 21 of chapter 5. Again, Matthew is writing. He's one of the 12, and uh, one of the 12 disciples. And Matthew, um, it's, it's important to note, I haven't mentioned this lately, so I want to remind us, that when Matthew writes the account of the life of Jesus, unlike Luke, he is not always chronological. That's not his primary focus. Okay? All of them wrote with a theme in mind. All of them wrote with intention and detail and much effort. Luke really stayed pretty chronological to, to everything. Matthew moves around a little bit to accomplish these sweeping thematic purposes that he's doing. I don't think, I think it affects us much other than this. Probably when we see chapter 5 in Matthew, we think this, this came out really, really early in his ministry. And it may have come out early, but maybe not as early as we think. That's probably the only applicable uh, note I would make today. Starting in verse 21, Jesus is speaking. Remember who's there. The 12 disciples are sitting on the ground in front of him. Jesus is sitting because that's the way great teachers have always sat, and that's the way he, he taught. He would sit. And then behind them is this sea of people outside overlooking the Sea of Galilee, this vista up high, sloping in such a way that there's natural amplification and thousands of people can hear Jesus just speak and teach. What a sight. He says as he continues the sermon from last week or last time, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. Okay, that's pretty straightforward, all right, on that second part. If you murder, you're going to go to court and you're going to get a pen- there's going to be a, fine, a, a penalty, okay? The Old Testament penalty was if you kill someone, then you receive death. Okay? And a lot of people have trouble with that because they feel like that's inconsistent. If life is sacred, then why would you take the life of someone else? But with the right number of witnesses, under the right just case of the court, life is so sacred that the penalty must be meeting the crime. And this is why the Old Testament would teach that with, the, with if I would say, exercised justly, capital punishment is an appropriate response to murder where somebody in anger has executed violence on another person to take away the most precious thing they have, their life. How else do you appropriately punish them? It doesn't mean there's not a place for mercy. It doesn't mean that that's not possible. But, but this, is, this is why I, I think people misunderstand that. And, and I hear this debate all the time. How can you be pro-life and at the same time be pro-capital punishment? It's because I don't execute capital punishment. And you don't get to either. Okay? God has delegated that to the state. Okay? And in the case of the, in, the, in the days of the Old Testament, they were under a theocracy, and the theocracy was able to do that. Okay? Here, things had gotten muddy, and they weren't doing that anymore. And part of that is because the state wasn't just. And part of that was some reasons I, I just don't know. 
This first part, though, I want you to notice. I want to point this out one more time. At the very beginning of 21, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago. So he's not saying it is written. He's not quoting Scripture, even though what he is saying is part of Scripture. Don't murder is part of the Ten Commandments. We've heard of that, right? And, and so um, basically he's saying, he's telling everybody what they already know. You've heard it said murder's wrong and you're going to be punished. And sure enough, it's wrong. And you're subject to judgment is the way he says it. Verse 22, though, is the bomb drop mic moment. But I tell you, okay, that anyone who is angry with a brother, some sisters add, or, tr- or sister, will be subject to judgment. Okay, now that, that sounds pretty stiff, but what kind of judgment? He continues, again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court, and anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. Now, this sounds over the top. Let's just be straight. I mean, from our Western ears, our modern ears, this sounds ridiculous. This, sounds, this is what people read and go, see, the Bible's ridiculous. It's, it can't be for today, okay? And, and there, there's explanations that I'm going to give you that I will at least give you reasonable reason to understand why this is carried out. Let me, let me point out a couple things. First of all, I said this last week. It's worth repeating. When Jesus says, you've heard it said long ago, then he says, but I tell you, that statement, I tell you, or I say to you, either one of those, is, is two sides of a coin that's really important for us to remember. Jesus is speaking from a place of authority. I tell or I say. And what kind of authority, what level of authority? There is no authority in your life that is, more, that is higher than your creator. Okay? And Jesus is your creator. Okay? God created the world through his son, Jesus Christ. Okay? So if anybody has a right to tell you what to do, And we don't like it when people tell us what to do. We don't like it when God tells us what to do. But that's who has the ultimate authority in your life. And Jesus is making, he is speaking from that place of authority. Now, it's something that you and I either step into or not. We choose to be under that umbrella of authority or we choose not to, if you remember that. But at the end of the day, and we sang it in one of the songs... Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's going to happen in such a way that everybody ever created in all of history will bow and profess Jesus is Lord. So you don't have to believe it because one day it will be evident and you won't have to believe it. It will be in front of you and you will have to respond. Now, in Christ, I'm going to want to respond. I'm not going to have to respond. Okay? And those of us who are in Christ, we, we welcome that. We, we gladly submit to the Lord most of the time. Right? But if you're not in Christ, it's going to be a rude awakening and the beginning of a very long eternity apart from God. And Jesus speaks about this over and over and over. And he speaks about it, he hints at it here when he says, in danger of the fire of hell. Raka, strange word, Aramaic word. It means basically, you idiot. Okay, it's, it's basically you are speaking to somebody, okay, and you're, t- you're challenging their, their mental acuity, okay? But it's, it's more than just, you know, oh, you, you idiot. It's not, it's not like that. It's, it's fervent from a heart of contempt. It's from a place, I hate your guts, you idiot. I cannot believe you just did that. You are moron. You are so, oh, I shouldn't have used the word moron because that's actually the root of the next one, the fool. But the idea is this. You are basically slandering them whether there's anyone around to hear it or not, slandering them. You're calling them names. Now, this feels really ridiculous when we say, oh, so Jesus is going to send us to hell for calling people names, okay? And I, I, I know what that sounds like. 
okay? Because there's a big difference between murder and calling somebody a name, right? One's got a corpse, and one might have hurt feelings. No, it could be more than that, okay? I think of it as assassination and character assassination, okay? God sees them as both worthy of the same penalty ultimately, ultimately, okay? In this life, in this world, the penalty is not the same, okay? You, you will get arrested and put into prison if they prove that you've murdered somebody. You won't for slandering someone in most cases because everybody's slandering everybody now. Just watch the news, uh, check the social media sites. Everybody's doing it, okay? There's no shame anymore in slandering people, okay? I mean, I remember doing it in middle school and high school without restraint. I mean, it was just one of the, that was a sport for me. I mean, I was just, anything I could do to, to call people, to do anything to try to build myself up by tearing other people down with my words, that was what I was trying to do. And, and all of those times, Jesus is saying, Darren, your murder is in your heart. Now, not all the time was there contempt, but there were many times. And I can tell you, I can remember times. I have one brother, no sisters, Okay. And I can think of many times when I wanted to kill him, and I would have admitted it at the time. I didn't have to say the words, but I would say things like, I hate your guts, I wish you were dead, those kinds of things. You know, when you were so angry, you say things, and you're like, I can't believe I said that. That's the heart that Jesus is speaking to here. Okay, that, when he says, um, uh, let's see here, when he goes, um, anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. This is weightier than just insulting someone's intelligence. Now you're insulting their morality, okay? If you read through um, the wisdom literature, the Proverbs in particular, fool is a moral statement. It's not just a, you're, you're, not, you're not smart. It's you're fooled morally, okay? And, and uh, it says in Proverbs 1-7, I think, that the fear of the Lord... Uh, so wisdom is the beginning of fear of the Lord, is wisdom, right? Which is the opposite of foolishness. So you can see it's a moral statement. In many places in Scripture it says, if you wanted to, well, the whole conclusion of the book of Ecclesiastes is, what is it? Fear God. Fear God. And then you will begin in the, in the, uh, the area of knowledge and wisdom. So we see this, and in our Western minds, we go, oh, so if I call people names, I'm going to get the hook, or I'm going to go to hell, or whatever it is that you could. And people can read it that way, and I totally understand why they get there. It, it reads like that. But when you understand what he's getting at, he's saying this. He's saying the heart that you have to have to violently execute murder on purpose is the same heart that you have when you attack somebody verbally from a place of contempt. It's the same heart. The difference is opportunity or progression. What I mean by progression is this. Let's go to, uh, I'm just going to flip to James 1 real quick. James 1 verses 13 through 15 say this. This is the progression I'm talking about. Blessed is, I'm sorry, verse 13. When tempted, James writes, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desires and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. So do you see the progression there? If you and I give in to this heartbeat of contempt, okay, and don't reconcile it, with God, 
it, it starts to get a, a gain in strength. Okay? Some of us, and anger is, this is one man of many manifestations of anger in how it plays out in our lives. But he's saying that anger, that is very much at the root of this getting to a place where you're just you're raging and you're ready just to kill somebody. It's just hard to believe that, we could, that we're capable of that. But the reality is everybody in here is capable of doing this. Okay? I'm capable of doing this. I'm capable of getting to a place where I'm so angry with somebody that my heart is in such a bad place that I could want to just rank, strangle them or whatever is convenient and just end it. And you think, that just seems unthinkable. But we're capable of all kinds of sin. And if we're honest, we, we will we'll admit that. Now, if you're nurturing a heart for the Lord and you're keeping short accounts with Him, meaning that you're confessing sin regularly and early and often and, and you're making sure that you're not letting things pile up and not deal with them, then you're much less likely to give in to that. That's why being in the Word regularly is so important because this is where God stirs our heart to repent, is from the Word. And if you're not in the Word, then what else is going to challenge you to do what's right and good? Uh, the occasional sermon, maybe something somebody says, but you're, you're going to be more likely to let things pile up. And that progression that I read about in James is much, you're going to get further down the road. Right? I mean, the folks that do these heinous crimes that we see where they murder people, they didn't, like, grow up, get, get up one morning and go, I'm going to just be that kind of a person. They progressed from a place that wasn't quite there. The heart was, but the opportunity and the progression hadn't played out. Now, he's going to give us this necessity of reconciliation here next, and he's going to give us this urgency, okay? In verses 23 and 4, he's going to talk about the necessity. Okay? These are just two illustrations he's using to make this point, these points. First one is, verse 23, Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in the front of the offer, altar, and go, first go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Okay, so the picture here is not a church exactly. It's, a temp, it's the temple in Jerusalem. And we have um, someone uh, probably uh, in this example... It looks like it's left open, male or female. They go to the temple. They go, through, they go as far into the temple as they're allowed. If they're a Gentile, they have to stop in the outer court. If they're not a Gentile Jew, they can go further. If they're a woman, they have to stop at the court for women. If they're a man, they can go one more. Or, or, and then they make their offering, their sacrifice. Okay? And that sacrifice is an act of worship. So the picture is that uh, somebody goes in to offer a sacrifice... And they get there, and right before they offer the sacrifice, God convicts them of, and reminds them, you're not right with your brother. Your heart is not right with your brother. Therefore, your heart is not right for worship. You see it? The necessity of reconciliation because it affects our ability for authentic and true worship. Oh, we can stand and sing our songs we can go through the motions and no one would know the difference. We know when to smile, when to stand, when to sit, right? We know when to laugh and when to nod. and all. We, we know the, the, the routines, but, but that heart, no one else can see. God can see very clearly. He knows your heart right now. He knows my heart right now. There have been times, because I, I know what this feels like, right? There have been times 
as I've been here 16 years, when I have butted heads with people in our church, sometimes with leadership in our church, and tried to get up and worship and tried to get up and preach with that troubled heart, okay? It affects you. And if, you know, I think we know this. I think we intuitively recognize this. The, what we're seeing here is Jesus saying, this is a big deal. Because you were created to do one thing. Worship God. Right? Bring glory to God. And part of the way we do that is through our lives 24-7. And part of that way we do that is with our lips when we ascribe praise to him. Like when we were singing or when we are listening and reading scripture or when we are praying. Those are, those are the two postures of, or, or parallels of, of worship. Most of the time, we're doing what we're created to do, and when you do what you're created to do, you're worshiping God. If you're a pencil and you're being written with or erasing, then you're doing what you were created to do, and you're honoring your creator. Dixie Ticonderoga. Boom, there you go, number two. That pencil glorified their manufacturer. Well, you know who our manufacturer is? God, all right, through Jesus Christ. And so when I live my life the way he created me to live, using the gifts and talents he's given me to do, then I'm pleasing and worshiping him, unless... There's unreconciliation in my life. That's not a word, unreconciliation. When I am unreconciled with somebody. Now, this is, a, I can't, I'm going to have to give you um, something that is not tightly knit, uh, tied up in a bow, with a bow, okay? Because I don't understand everything in Scripture, but I think it's worth pointing out. It appears to, on the surface, that he's talking to brothers and sisters in Christ, right? He says, brother and sister commentators that I read, they all seemed to agree or they were silent on the issue. But what troubled me was when he starts talking about people ending up in hell, and I'm like, brothers and sisters in Christ don't end up in hell, okay? That's a firm conviction I have. If I am born again, I can't be unborn again, right? If I'm born of the Spirit, how can I be unborn of the Spirit? I just don't believe that if I'm genuinely in Christ that, that anyone can take me out of that. I just don't believe that. I don't think Scripture teaches that. I'm pretty, I'm pretty firm on that, Okay? But this reads like, whoa, what about, you know, so who's brother and sister? So I challenge that interpretation for this reason, for that reason. I think it could mean, because think of the audience, right? He's speaking to Jews. Predominantly, there's going to be Jews there. He is a Jew, all right? And he's speaking about the Jewish scriptures and the Jewish kingdom that is soon going to be available to all people, all nations. In fact, it always has been, but he's making it more and more clear that it's for all nations and all ethnicities. Even though the Jews were chosen, it wasn't because they were the best, right? It was because, man, they're going to make me look good when I get them to do something good. It was that kind of, of thing, okay? So I'm, I'm, I question that. I go, well, how can it be? Could it be that it's... The, and and we're also, the other thing I point out that kind of helps me with this is this feels like a time of transition, right? We're, we're not in the Old Testament days anymore, okay? There was 400 years of silence, and we're about to enter the, we're in the, we're about to enter the church age, which begins in Acts 2. So at, after the cross, burial, resurrection of Jesus, we enter the church age, which is New Testament, if you will. And from there forward, we know brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's who is reading the book of Matthew. But this time when Jesus is around, it's not always nice and neat what's happening, and we can't always explain it to our satisfaction. I'll give you another reason or another example. When did the disciples become followers? When, when did the disciples become Christians? I don't know. 
When did they start following Jesus? Oh, well, they're sitting right there. They're, they're following him. Okay, I can, I can get behind that. Yep, they're following Jesus. So is Judas Iscariot. He's walking right there with them. Most of them would have said, oh, he's the most qualified of us to be a follower of Jesus. Yeah. So when did the Holy Spirit come? Well, some say the end of John, book of John. Some say the early part of Acts. It's okay that we don't know. Probably people out there that, are, that have figured this out and they're smarter than me, and that is okay. I'm okay not having to figure it out because here's the bottom line. At the end of the day, Jesus is saying reconciliation is needed and necessary in your life. And if you have a relationship that you... That, and let's just make it... Let's use the broadest definition of brother and sister. If there is a person alive who is a fellow creature of Christ, person... You know, in one sense, we're all children of God because God created all people, okay? Not in the sense that Scripture speaks, but in one sense. If you just want to use that broad definition, are, is there anyone in your life that you, are, that you need to reconcile with? Okay? Jesus would say it's very important and necessary. And that's why he says it affects your worship. It affects my worship. Now, let me make a note on reconciliation, too. Obviously, when you go to reconcile with somebody... You can't control whether they respond well or not, right? How many times have we gone to someone and apologized and it didn't go well? They rejected your apology. They reject you. And you're like, oh, that just felt terrible. I can't believe I put myself out there and they just shot me down. But you tried. And to the extent at which it depends on you, you try. If you haven't talked to someone in 20 years and you remember that, you pick up the phone or you type out an email or you do something, you reach out and you try. You apologize for your part, right? Rarely, I'm almost tempted to say never, rarely in a relationship where there's this, is it all one person, okay? It could be 95% and 5%. I'm just asking you to own your 5%. I'm asking you to do what you need to do because you can't control them, nor should you try, but you can control you. And you have to answer for what you do or don't do. You don't have to answer for how they respond. Okay? So if you go to someone, try to reconcile, and they reject it, you go back and you give your gift. Okay? But that's the application, right? You're sitting in a church service like today. Okay? This is the giving moment. Okay? Because Gene's not here, right? So you can tell him I officially did the giving moment. I didn't forget it. Okay? So offering bins are there and there, and you can give online and all that good stuff. But here's what I would add to it. God loves a cheerful giver. And so, you won't hear this in every church, if you're not giving cheerfully today, please don't give. And if you have a relationship in your life that needs reconciliation and you haven't done that, don't give today either. Because it's a big deal. Because it affects your worship. And when you give with an unreconciled relationship because you haven't tried, you're, you're really not worshiping. You're just giving money. You're donating Ooh, don't you love that word? makes you want to worship, doesn't it? Oh, I donated today. God wants your heart. He wants you. He doesn't want your money. He doesn't even want your time. He just wants you. Relation. He wants that. So when we, re when we are reconciled to God, it helps us get to a place where we want to reconcile with other people. Okay, let's be honest. We don't always want to reconcile with other people, right? But deep, deep down, we know that that's good and right. If you don't have this, though, you're not going to go for this. Now, let me add to the second point, and he illustrates this, and we're done. This is an urgent matter, OK? 
okay? You're going to be tempted to walk out of here and go, yep, I need to do that, and you're going to put it off. Let me just let you say what Jesus will say to you, and then I can go home. Settle matters quickly with your adversary, who is taking you to court. Do it while you're still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, there's the authority, and there's the... Jesus is saying, I tell, there's the authority, and you and me, this is the divine ethic that we are to live by as kingdom citizens. You will not get out until you've paid the last penny. The picture here is there is a a legal matter that is unresolved between two parties who we're going to call brothers or brothers and sisters. We're going to call them brothers just for the sake of simplicity. And they are so mad at each other, they, and they're so unwilling and unable to reconcile this issue that they're willing to go to a, a judge outside of their family who has the power to make a ruling arbitrarily, even potentially unjustly. And they're willing to put their disagreement in his hands because they're so unwilling to give in to the other. We call this stubborn Americanism, Right? And we, some people wear it as a badge. He's stubborn. Yeah, I'm proud of it, you know. And God is not impressed. Okay? It could be that one um, owed the other money and they disagreed. On, I, I did pay you. You don't remember. I paid you. We're done. We're square. Nope, you didn't pay me the last payment. And we're going to go to the judge. And Jesus is saying, this is a big deal. Settle matters quickly. Okay? And there's a warning attached to this. Because he's saying, if you allow this to go to the court, it is out of your hands. And you may not get a ruling that you like. It is better to settle for an agreement that you don't like with your brother on the way than to put your hands at the mercy of a judge. I don't know that that's changed. I wouldn't want to go to court and have to face a judge for any reason right now. Reconciliation. It's a God desire. I can't imagine a situation where God doesn't want reconciliation. What would bring God the most glory? Reconciliation with a, to, between two people that no one thinks is possible. Right? And yet Ken can tell you an awesome story where a good friend of his left his wife, was not a believer. She had every reason to let him go. He was, she was a believer. And and in her case, and I'm not saying this is prescription, I'm just saying this is their story, she was convinced she was supposed to wait, and she didn't remarry, she didn't allow him, he tried to divorce her, she wouldn't divorce him. And I don't know how she prevented that, you can't always prevent that, right? She discouraged him enough to not do it. He eventually came to Christ, they reconciled, and he did, just not long ago, he did wedding for his own kids he's a pastor. God can do amazing things when you think, I can't reconcile with that person. Well, maybe you're right. And you don't have any control over whether it works or not. What you do have control over is whether you try. And before God, you try. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. That's not, ultimately not on you. Because you can't control that. Reconciliation is necessary. It's urgent. And I don't think it's an accident that Jesus uses anger to show us 
our heart. And he says, this is the kind of heart that puts us in the wrong place on the side of eternity. So reconciliation needs to start with us and God. We need to repent of our sins. Repent of your anger. You may think nobody knows that you're harboring anger. You're the last person to realize that everybody knows. You realize you'll be the last person to recognize what everybody already sees because they feel it whenever you're around. Okay? Reconcile to God so that you are empowered to do your part in reconciling with others. It's necessary and it's urgent. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you um, that you've made a way for us to be reconciled to you that you died on the cross in our place so that we, would, we could live in yours reconciled, not just we're no longer enemies of God. We get to be favored children of God, sons and daughters of the king, royalty, brothers and sisters who, have, who get to share in the inheritance of Jesus himself. And Jesus is making such a big deal about relationships. Lord, you know we value relationships because they, our lives are about relationships. But God, we admit or confess that we don't take them nearly as seriously as you do and that we need to repent and, and believe that you can reconcile in some cases where we have a lot of skepticism. It's a work of God that changes the heart, that gets somebody to the place where they are able to say, I'm sorry. To own and take their part, their 5%. Lord, I pray that you will abolish the strongholds of pride in our lives that keep us from doing the very thing you call us to do, to humble ourselves, that we may attempt at reconciliation and then we can worship you with authentic faith. Help us. We, we cannot do this without you. We dare not do this without you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.